pray. Father in heaven, Ephesians 5, 11 commands us to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of some things that are done in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything becomes visible is light. Therefore, the scriptures say, Father, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father in heaven, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. And if there were a nationwide, church-wide, spiritual slumber, it would be happening with reference to this issue. I pray that you would cause my heart, our hearts, and the heart of our churches and even our nation to awake. It can happen. It must happen. Please help me, Lord, as I preach. We have a regard for the Bible in this church. I pray that we would regard you speaking in the scriptures. Please keep me from error. Guard my content as well as my tone. Let all that I say be said in love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have not done so already, I'll invite you to open a Bible to the book of Joshua this morning. There should be a, a Bible nearby uh, if you need one. Joshua chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse 1. Old Testament book of Joshua. Eighth chapter, first verse. If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, it begins on page 183. And it can, the text for today actually continues all the way to 185. We won't get to 185, but we will go on to 184 this morning. Uh, Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The mega theme of the book of Joshua is this. If you have been saved by the grace of Christ... Strive to enter into the rest of God. If you have been saved by the grace of Christ, strive to enter into the rest of God. And the reverse is true too. That's why there's an if at the beginning of that statement. If you have not been saved by the grace of Christ, you cannot and you will not enter into the rest of God. But today may be the day of salvation. Today, if you don't harden your heart, today, if you hear his voice, you could enter into his rest. The Bible counsels that we would cease striving and rest ourselves in him. We will never find true rest in spouse or kids or friends or other family or career or identity in anything else. Jesus says, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You will find rest for your soul. So that's what we've been talking about over these months as we've been studying the book of Joshua, this issue of rest. And if you have been saved by the grace of Christ, strive to enter into the rest of God. If you know Jesus and you've begun to experience his rest, Jesus would simply beckon you to come further. 
further and further in and deeper down into his rest that he offers, rest in God. That's the big idea. Now, this week's big idea, or the small idea under that great big idea, is this one. It builds on the message that Seth preached last week. Here's the central thrust of today's message. The rest of God will not be ours until we are ruthless and eliminating and exposing secret sin. The rest of God will not be ours until we are ruthless. If you want, this is the Bible, if you want rest, be ruthless in exposing and eliminating secret sin. Last week, Seth preached a sermon that if you were not here for it as I was not, I would encourage you to not pass go, do not collect $200, go right to moundfree.org and listen and be blessed and be helped. He opened up Joshua chapter 7 and taught us that there is no such thing as no-fault sin. There's no such thing as personal sin that doesn't have public or corporate consequences. It doesn't happen in families or marriages or churches or nations or worlds. No such thing as that. Our private decisions have public consequences, for better or for worse. I love that Seth pointed out that private faithfulness has consequences too. That's wonderful. Private faithfulness does too, but it was the negative side of the ledger last week. We learned that Achan's decision in Joshua chapter 7 and its consequences were dire. Achan's decision to keep back some of the spoil that would have gone uh, to the Lord after they took the city of Jericho, Achan's sin cost Israel the lives of 36 soldiers in the first battle of Ai. It also cost Achan and his entire family their lives. But after God's judgment fell, chapter 7, tail end of that chapter, it says God turned from his burning anger. I, ho- I hope if you have eyes to see, there, there's the gospel right there. I remember asking Seth, how are you going to preach Jesus this week? And he did. The gospel is that Jesus is the true and better Achan. That's the gospel from Joshua chapter 7. Jesus came to bear sin's penalty. Jesus also came to break sin's power. Jesus came to banish sin's presence. If you have been saved by the grace of Christ, strive to enter into the rest of his grace. So here's the first point today. As we root out secret sin, we will increasingly experience the rest of God. As we root out secret sin, we will increasingly experience the rest of God. I remember reading the first Christian book I think I ever read. It was A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. And he said that sin needs to be extracted from our lives like a tooth from your jaw without Novocaine. It's that painful. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. 
only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. As we root out secret sin, we will increasingly experience the rest of God. Now that's the point of verses 1 and 2 in chapter 8, and it's also the point of all of chapter 8. It just goes hand in glove with chapter 7. They root out the secret sin in chapter 7, and then they begin to experience rest in chapter 8. There is a notable difference between Israel's attack on the city of Ai in chapter 7 and their attack on the city of Ai in chapter 8. And it is this. God is with them this time. That's the difference at the end of the day. God is with them. They have cleaned house. They have established integrity as a people by addressing hidden hypocrisy. And God gives them the battle. So, They're ready for war, and verses 3 to 21 describe the battle plan and the battle itself. So um, listen now as I pick up the reading in in verse 3 to verse 21. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with you, uh, with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. As soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle, but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back again to the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and the smoke of the city went up, they turned back 
and struck down the men of Ai. I'm only pausing here to note two things, and then we'll go back into verse 22. The first thing to note is that God commands Joshua and the Israelite armies to defeat the city of Ai through means of an ambush. An ambush. This is a far cry from his tactic for the people of Israel at Jericho. You remember that battle tactic? It's very different. It's not an ambush. The method at Jericho was an orthodox too. It was a strange plan. But at least the plan of circling the city of Jericho seven times and then seven times on the seventh day, that happened in plain sight of the people of Jericho. They, they watched this all happen. The victory of Ai in chapter 8 is different. This is trickery. This is military hocus-pocus. And it works. Now, this is a just war. Any war that the God of heaven and earth declares is a just war by definition. But that doesn't mean that he has to fight fair. God has enemies in I, and through an ambush, they lay siege to the city, and the plan works perfectly. That's the first thing I just want to note here the nature of ambush with the enemies of God. Second thing I'd want to point out as we read is, is the absolute and breathtaking universality of the whole defeat. It was total this time. Israel took no captives. God told them to wipe out every person that breathes in the city of Ai, and they did at his command. Look with me at chapter 8. Verses 22 to 29. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all of the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last, had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction, only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua, at Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Now, it's at this point when people begin to get a little bit squeamish about what's happening. People today are easily upset and easily offended when they consider the Canaanite conquest. 
the genocide of these ancient Near Eastern peoples alarms us. Two weeks ago, I read a quote from one of my favorite pastors, and I'm going to read it again. Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. It's a very different focus. It is the biblical focus. That's the answer here. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Sin earns death. And because at this time God was the the direct monarch, he was the governor of Israel. It was a theocracy at this point in time. The king gave the command and the troops carried out the orders. Kings have the right to engage in just war. And he at this time was the king of Israel. He commanded Joshua to do this and they did it. 12,000 inhabitants of the city of Ai destroyed in one fell swoop. Why? One of the practices that these people were involved in was the religious worship of the god Molech. Molech was a popular deity in the ancient Near East at the time of Joshua, especially in the land of Canaan especially among the Amorites. And perhaps more than anything else, the worship of Molech was marked by the detestable and revolting ritual of religious child sacrifice. That's how Molech was worshipped in Canaan, 1400 B.C. Evidence of this custom is actually cited in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 18. Verse 21, where we hear the Lord soberly warn the nation of Israel not to engage in the worship of Molech. God says, you shall not give any of, he shouldn't have to say this, you shall not give any of your children or offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, our English translations gloss at this point, but you've got a footnote if you've got the ESV and you are not in the dark. The Hebrew literal translation for the words offer them is the phrase, make them pass through the fire. The god of Molech, archaeology tells us, was oftentimes represented by a metal statue, arms out, palms extended. And the worship of Molech took place when they set fire underneath the arms until they were blazing hot. And then they would come and offer their babies to be burned on the arms of the statue. It happened constantly. He was the god of child sacrifice. Children were roasted to death on the arms of Molech. Hundreds of years later, In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 31, the Lord speaks of this practice again. But this time, he's not talking about how their neighbors, how Israel's neighbors are doing this. He says this sin has made its way right into the people of God. In Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 31, the Lord says of Judah, They burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, Nor did it ever come into my mind. 
If you have questions about the genocide at Jericho and the genocide at Ai, let me lay those to rest. Jericho and Ai and the rest of the cities in Canaan were wicked, wicked places. They deserved this. They earned it. God put up with it for generation after generation. But there came a day of reckoning. And it happened through the people of Israel. Joshua chapter 8 describes it. The wages of sacrificing your children to false gods is death. This coming Tuesday... The date will be January 22nd, 2013. This Tuesday will mark 40 years since the handing down of the watershed United States Supreme Court decision known as Roe versus Wade. For 40 years in our land, it has been the law that a mother may take the life of her unborn child for virtually any reason at any time during the pregnancy. In the four decades since this decision, nearly 55 million babies have been slaughtered on American soil. That's almost 1.4 million little ones a year. 3,700 babies a day. One child every 23 seconds. There will be 100 dead by the end of this sermon. It makes the Holocaust look small. The Holocaust wasn't small. Even in our 21st century, the vast majority of people in our land, even given all of our digital connectivity today, we've never seen an abortion with our own eyes. I don't just recommend that you go online and look. I beg you to. Do it. www.abort73.com www.abort Number73.com. Conscience demands that you see. We say we walk by faith, not by sight. But when our faith doesn't give us eyes to see what this is, then you need to walk by sight so that you can have faith. You might say, well, it's, it's not the same as Molech worship. Of course. There are differences. There are substantial differences between abortion on demand in this country and the worship of Molech 3,000 years ago. The Canaanites brought newborn babies to the arms of Molech. Americans don't wait until their babies are born. Babies are smaller in our culture. They're more dependent on mom in our culture. That's one difference. In Canaan, ancient pagan people sacrificed their children to a god of metal. In America, in our contemporary culture, we sacrifice our children to gods of expediency and easier lives. I have felt the urge to preach on this issue over the years, 
I've resisted it. I can't resist it any longer. I think it's a leading of the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor and author who was executed in 1945 for his involvement on a plot on Adolf Hitler's life, once said this, quote, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless, Bonhoeffer says. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And he was just talking about the Holocaust. You should hear Bonhoeffer on the topic of abortion. He wrote an ethics book that's outstanding. The loss of a million babies' lives over this next year will be a sickening tragedy. But perhaps even more sickening would be the silence of Christian pulpits and Christian churches who know it's happening. One commitment you have for me as your pastor is that on Sanctity of Life Sunday, God helping me, I'm not going to miss this opportunity again. Every year, so long as you want me to be your pastor, you will hear on Right to Life Sunday that children are made in the image of God. And no person, no child should be deprived of life or liberty without due process of law. I read that somewhere. Well, that's my side of the issue, and that's not the only thing I can do. It's just the least I can do is preach on it once a year. What could you do? What can you do right now where you are in your life on the issue of abortion? Here's a couple of suggestions, just beginning ideas. Far and away, the most important principle would simply be this. Believe that God wants you to be informed, wants you to care, and wants you to actually do something. You. If you've been saved by the grace of Christ, this is the rest of God. Believe that God wants you to be informed and to care and to do something about abortion. Proverbs 24.11 says to all of us, it's a command, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. That's a command binding on all of us. All of us who believe the words of Scripture, want to walk in the whole counsel of God, rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. How do you do that? One, one way you might fulfill that command is the issue of educating yourself. Something that I've been doing at a frantic clip over the past few days. I realized Wednesday the Lord wanted me to preach on this and that it was right in our text. So I began to read. Um, read some good things. I think two things I'd recommend would, that I have not read uh, would be Randy Alcorn's Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. I understand that is an outstanding resource. Alcorn has earned the right to speak with me on anything. Um, he has given at great cost, given his life. He gave his pastorate over this issue. 20 years ago. Pro-life answers to pro-choice arguments. And then, if you wanted to go a little bit further, Scott Klusendorf, with a K. Scott Klusendorf wrote a book called The Case for Life. I understand that I've seen a little bit of him online. Scott Klusendorf, some have said, is the finest evangelical Christian voice on the topic of abortion. Not just because he gets the content right, but because he gets tone right. Scott Klusendorf loves people. He's out loving people. So educate yourself. Something else you might do is just 
set aside one meal each week for fasting and prayer over this issue. If the Holocaust of Nazi Germany were happening in our land, you would set aside a meal once a week to pray. This is worse. Don't underestimate what you might be able to accomplish with the Lord's help as you fall on your knees and simply pray about it. As you pray, it might lead you into all kinds of other wisdom, things you could do. Um, You might become involved in some meaningful way in the Safe Families for Children program that is widely sponsored by the Evangelical Free Church of America, Safe Families for Children. Maybe you might get more concrete in the form of foster care or adoption. You might talk to parents in this congregation who have raised adoptive children, or perhaps you are the beneficiary being adopted yourself. If you'd like more information about these or any other options, you can come and talk to us in the leadership. We'd be happy to give those to you. It might be that the Lord wants you to befriend, maybe a woman in need of your help or your wisdom. I, I can't imagine how lonely the road is. What is the path? What is the pull on someone who is feeling trapped and scared and uncertain about what to do and doesn't see love coming from the church? Maybe it's just as easy as befriending someone who's wrestling with these issues. In all of these applications, don't forget or take too lightly your privilege as as a citizen of this country, as a citizen of this state, to vote, to participate and represent and demonstrate and speak out on behalf of the unborn. One idea would be a a note that Kara gave me, Minnesota House of Representatives. There's a march coming up, Representative... um, uh, state representative has sent this to our church, and if you're interested in a march that's going to be happening, I believe it's Tuesday, um, come see me about this. But as you enter into the world of politics, let me just caution you. I'm not cautious about politics. I think we should be deeply involved up to our eyeballs in it. But I, just a word of caution. As you do so, do so in love. Do not wield the sword of the Spirit apart from the manifest fruit of the Spirit. How heartbreaking and counterproductive when the pro-life cause is known more for her wrangling than for her weeping, for her anger over this rather than her willingness to costly suffer for it. So whatever you do, just be sure you do something. Believe that God wants you to care and do something about abortion. Now, there's another chapter in front of us, but in view of the time and the clock here, we're obviously not going to get there today. Um, I just give you the second point so you can complete your outline. If you're like me, it's going to drive you nuts. So here's, here's the outline. The second point, the point of chapter 9 is not complicated, and in many ways, it's just the next logical step after chapter 8, point 1. Second point today, as our rest is beginning to be won, sin will regroup. And new battles will appear on the horizon. As our rest is beginning to be won, sin will regroup and new battles will appear on the horizon. The account of the Gibeonite deception. If you've never read Joshua chapter 9, you are in for um, a surprising historical narrative. The account of the Gibeonite deception is nothing short of incredible. I'll leave you to read it on your own this week. It's a story of like a cunning uh, ruse on one hand, the, the, Gibeon, the Gibeonites. And then there's this epic fail of the leadership of Israel on the other hand. 
that needs to be examined, applications for leaders as we fail and what to do because we will fail. And then how, this is a gospel story because it's in the Bible, it's a gospel story, how the Gibeonites are folded into the people of God and receive grace and mercy just like Rahab. That's a stunning thing. They lie their way into the family of God and stay there for generation upon generation and minister at the sanctuary. It really is worth your time and meditation. If you have had an elective abortion, if you have been supportive of the legislation of Roe v. Wade, if you've participated whether personally or by your silence in some sort of complicit nature, as we all have to some degree, you need to know God loves you. And he doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you because he's love. God is love. And he sacrificed his son too. He did it very differently than America does it. He did it because he's giving. He did it because that's the way he shows us who he is. At great cost to himself, he gave his son. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. Corey Ten Boom said that. And if you feel, as I do, for multiple reasons, conflict over this issue, just know that Christ is deeper still. He loves you very much. And he gave his life for you. If you've been saved by the grace of Christ, strive to enter into the rest of God. The rest of God will not be ours. Will not be ours or anyone else's. If you think America can't turn around on this issue, I would offer slavery as Exhibit A. Really. It would have been impossible. Our nation was split right down the middle. We had a line running through the the nation, the Mason-Dixon line representing how deeply split our nation was, whether over an African-American was a person. How ridiculous. I wonder if in 150 years, this nation might look back at 2013 and say, how strange. The way we look back on Nazi Germany and say, how could it be? Nations can turn around. They can, but not without the gospel and not without the church with its hand on the wheel. As we root out secret sin, we will be increasingly on the receiving end of the experience of the rest of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that uh, tough truths often yield the sweetest results. And I pray Above all things, Lord, that people would hear the gospel of Jesus just loud and clear, nailed to a cross for every sin under the sun. Father, there is no one within the sound of my voice that is beyond the reach of your grasp. Father, I pray not only for those who have never come into your family by grace through faith that you would draw them now, but I pray pray, Lord, that they would see that we are Christians by our love, not our hate. And I pray, Father, that people who have wrangled way more than they should over this issue would begin weeping over this issue, and that there would be a sort of brokenness 
that would just manifestly defend, that it would be the ultimate final apologetic for the truth of the cause of life. In Jesus' name, amen.